Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, your podcast for insights into the European VC industry. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our Slack community at theeuropeanvc.com forward slash community. And don't forget, if you are about to raise a fund or an international round, do let us know and we'll be happy to introduce you to relevant investors. Today, we're talking to Ron Diamond for a true deep dive on the future of family offices and their interaction with and impact on VC. Ron is the founder and chairman of Diamond Wealth and represents over 100 family offices, ranging in size from $250 million to $30 billion, and invests in private market assets. Centre stage for our conversation today, Ron is on the advisory board of the Digital Cities and Disruptive Technology Programme at Stanford, and is helping to launch the Family Office Initiative at Stanford to help bring together the heads of billions of family office assets to charter the future of family office investing. Want to be on top of who the best up-and-coming emerging VCs are in Europe and maybe even invest with them? Pre-register for our newsletter on theemergingvc.substack.com and be the first to get in the know. Ron, welcome to the European VC. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm thinking let's start with an introduction to who is Ron and what got you into the world of family offices. Well, first, thank you for having me. You do a terrific job with what you guys do. So I graduated Northwestern. My first job was Drexel Burnham. I was there for two years. Drexel imploded. I started a hedge fund, ran it for 10 years, sold it, took a year off, and then I started Diamond Wealth. So That's basically the quick and dirty. Basically, what I started doing with the company was I started investing some of my own capital. You know, my thought process was if I could put in a million dollars or two into a deal, I would maybe be the 13th or 15th or 28th call. And when I ran my hedge fund, they didn't call them family offices. They called them rich people. So I had a bunch of rich people (laughs) who are now called family offices. And I just figured if I could put in one or two and they could put in 98 so I could take down 100 million, I'll get better deal flow and execution. I'll be the first call rather than the 20th. And that's basically what we did. So I wasn't charging anything. I wasn't doing it for altruistic purposes. I was doing it so I can get better deal flow and execution. So that's kind of how we started the company. And then it kind of morphed because what I found was that the family office, I started speaking at these conferences and the family office industry is what I found was it is very fragmented, very siloed and very inefficient. So what I do now is we work closely with about 100 families, anywhere between 250 million up to 30 billion. We don't touch the public markets. I think it's very difficult to create alpha, at least today in the public markets. I just have money in ETFs, but in the private markets, I think you can. So that's private equity, venture capital, real estate credit, special situations. So I invest a lot. I kind of act as a funnel. My investors typically invest alongside me, and that's what we do. I sit on 10 boards of companies that like to kind of keep my finger on the pulse of what's going on in different industries. I recently launched the Stanford Family Office Initiative, and for the last couple of years, I've been trying to get them to start a family office center. It got greenlighted about two months ago, and then we had our first conference about a month ago, and you know we had no idea what to expect. And it probably quintupled what we had expected. We had over 850 family offices from six continents on the call. So there's something there. And that's my goal is to create a center at Stanford where we could share best practices with family offices 
and go forward from there. Ron, I'm super curious about this area. I have a bit of a background in the family office world, the family business world. I've written a book on succession change, primarily focused on the soft issues there. So this is super interesting to me. And I definitely get your point about it being siloed and there being walls between the different stakeholders in that world. And for that reason, I'm also very curious, how did you get Stanford in on this? What was their thinking around it? What got them to do it? Sure. Well, first, remember, the model currently doesn't work. Everyone right now is jumping into the family office model, but let's look back a little bit. 68% of the family offices started since 2000, and half of those started since the crash in 2008. So this is a relatively new phenomenon. Mm -hmm. It's been around since the Rockefellers and Vanderbilts and even before then, but the concept of the way we know family offices is relatively new. Only 25% of family offices make it to the second generation. 10 make it to the third and five make it to the fourth. So the model doesn't work. I felt the industry needs something. We need some kind of mechanism to become more efficient, less siloed, and more collaborative. And my thought process with Stanford was, it's my belief that as private equity and venture capital disrupted the public markets in the early to mid eighties, because it was a better model. It's hard to run a company where every 90 days you've got to report to somebody like me or an analyst (laughs) and run your company. You're basically managing your earnings. So the private equity and venture capital model is a better model. It's 2%, you know, pay for the overhead, 20%. I make money only if you make money. The problem is a lot of these, not all, but many of the venture capital and private equity firms became an AUM game. And what should be a $500 million fund became a $5 billion fund. And it's too big. And it's then how they would deploy the capital would be different. So I believe that as private equity and venture capital disrupt the public markets in the early to mid 80s, I believe family offices will disrupt the private equity and venture capital markets going forward. The main reason, the biggest advantage family, and we'll touch on it later if you'd like, family offices, the alignment of interest is much better because family offices have something called patient capital. Mm -hmm. And the way that private equity and venture capital are incented, they're incented to flip companies every three to five years. It doesn't make it wrong, but it's not really the most effective way to do it. Whereas a family office, they're not incented by IRR in flipping companies every three to five years. So if you don't have to sell a company every three, four, five years, you hold one company that's really working for 20 years, less friction, less transaction costs, much more efficient. Similar concept to compound interest. I think you said an important thing in the beginning, which is you're working with family offices of 250 million and upwards in assets under management. And there's not many of those. I'm seeing a lot of, you know, family office like institutions or gatherings that are much smaller. What are your thoughts on the family office space below 250 million euros? Sorry, dollars for you, of course. My thought is very simple. With under 250 million US, you should be in a multifamily office. The multifamily office were, were created for families anywhere worth between 10 million to 200 million dollars. That's why they were created. If you reverse engineer this and you look at it, and you look at the cost of what it would be to have your own family office, to have the rent, to have an accountant, to have a lawyer, to have a staff on team, to reverse engineer it, it doesn't make economic sense until you probably have close to $500 million if you invest in the private markets. So there are a ton of family offices that will call themselves family offices, and they are family offices, but they would be much better off with a multifamily office because of the shared costs. The other thing is, remember, a lot of these since post-crash, pre-COVID, the big trend in these family offices was to do direct investing. Mm -hmm. And the rationale was, well, I don't want, why should I spend 2% in 20 when I can invest direct? Well, first of all, that's not a reason 
to invest, <laughs> right? We, to, you don't go to a doctor because he's cheaper. That's number one. Number two, problem is it's post-crash, pre-COVID, everything worked. I mean, if you were in private equity or venture capital or real estate or credit or the stock market or Bitcoin, everything went up. So all these direct deals these families did worked. The problem is that they really don't have the infrastructure. Many of them, most of them don't have the infrastructure to properly vet it. And if we weren't in a market that was skyrocket straight up, as we head into a recession and markets go down, a lot of these family offices can be in way over their skis. And you're gonna see a lot of them morph into multifamily offices, which is what they should do. So I advise families, if you're under 500 million, you could have a quasi-family office, but you're better off using a multifamily office. Once you get to the $500 million and up, then you could set up the infrastructure, then you've got enough people to do it to have a single family office. I'm thinking maybe we should dive a bit deep then just for our listeners to understand because this size of family offices, you know, they are something you don't see every day and don't get close to every day. So maybe enlighten us a bit on the structure of the teams inside, because that's, of course, the first thing a venture capitalist will think when they hear you saying that family offices should do direct deals and they're going to transform the private equity and VC world. Then naturally, VCs would think that, but they don't have the talent. <laughs> well, that's a good point. And right now, in general, they don't. You know, I still think you're only in the second inning for family offices. One of the things that's going to have to change is how family offices incent their employees. So let's say you're a bright kid, you come out of Stanford or Harvard, and you work for a family office. Right now, and again, I'm generalizing, and let's say they pay a quarter million dollars. They look at you and they say, you cost me 250000 Now let's look at a kid who comes out of Stanford or Harvard and gets hired by Apollo or Blackstone, and they pay him $250,000. They look at this person as not, they cost me two fifty. They look at this person as they could potentially be a profit center to make me $10 million. So it's nuanced, but if you look at it as a cost versus looking at a profit center. So what's happening is you've got family offices like the Pritzkers, the Crowns, the Dowells, and the bigger ones. They've incentivized their people and they compete, they pay and compensate people directly. Without paying people the proper money, you're not gonna get the talent. Without the talent, you're not gonna get the performance. So right now, one of the things we're looking to do at Stanford is to basically show them, here's how you have to compensate people if you want to attract top talent. If you pay a lot less, you're just not going to attract the talent that a power or Blackstone can. But they can and they do on the more sophisticated families, giving them part of the carry, giving them loans, letting them be part of the investments. Um, there's a lot of things family offices can do, but everything has to be aligned, the incentives. And I do think over the next three to five years, we'll see a massive shift. I mean, remember, there's $10 trillion right now in family office capital. You've got $65 trillion coming downstream from the next baby boomers, the next gen over the next 15 years. This will be bigger than the entire private equity and venture capital market mm -hmm. combined. So mm -hmm. it's a massive, massive market. It's just fragmented, inefficient, and siloed. And all we're trying to do at Stanford is put our arms around it and make this more efficient and more collaborative. This begs a natural question that we should have started out with. The Family Office Initiative at Stanford is global, am I correct? Correct. 
Yeah. Yeah. We at the first conference, we didn't have Antarctica, but we had six continents, <laughs> six or seven. It was people from all over the world. Yes, this will be global because, again, a lot of the methodologies you need in order to create efficiency, create alpha, and to run a family office are universal. They're not tied just to the United States or just to Europe or just to Asia. So this will be a global platform. I'm still trying to wrap my head around the changes that would have to occur to be able to get the same efficiencies as you have in the VC model, where you have all the different managers being super focused on the points where they have great access, where they have great app value, and thinking through, even though it's going to be huge in the sense of assets under management, I'd still think that, you know, with 250 million under management or 500 million under management, and you then don't want to allocate, I'm guessing, more than 3% or so to venture capital, and then that 3% only comes up to become an, a relatively okay-sized VC fund, and that then will only allow you to be exposed to one investment manager's or one general partner's thinking, compared to if you're investing through VC funds, you'd maybe do 10 different VC funds or 20 <laughs> different VC funds with that type of allocation. How do you see it work out? Everything that I'm talking about really boils down to alignment of interest, right? And at the end of the day, VC funds, which are paying 220 fee, and again, I'm generalizing. Yeah, yeah. And right now, family office market can't completely disrupt the venture capital model because they're not nearly as efficient. Oh, yeah. But what I'm saying is because the alignment of interest is better, ultimately it will. And the reason is pretty simple is let's say you're a bright kid, you come out with a great technology, great app out of Stanford. Right now they go to Sequoia or NEA or some of these big firms and they try to get backing from them. And that's terrific. And they figure, wow, I got $20 million from Sequoia. The issue through the lens of the entrepreneur is you're one of 20 companies, right? Your company might take off like a rocket ship, which is what you hope to do. Most don't. Most take a little while to gain some traction. So if in three years it takes your company a while and you really haven't done too much, but you're right around the corner, it's not up to you whether to continue. It's up to the private equity or venture capital fund. And because they're myopic and look at things every three to five years, because that's how they're compensated, they're going to flip the company, even though if it was held by a family office who has patient capital, they could see, yeah, the first three years, it's slowly doing okay, but wow, we see a trajectory. They can't do that. And the reason is, again, it all boils down to alignment of interest and it all boils down to patient capital. Patient capital is something you'll be hearing a ton about in the next three to five years. And it's very simple. You don't have to sell a company. And for an entrepreneur, most entrepreneurs don't know about family offices or how to get access family offices. Also, many family offices don't know how to contact these entrepreneurs. So one of the things we're looking to create at Stanford is a way to have the rich people meet the smart people, right? So the entrepreneurs <laughs> and the family offices can meet one another. And that's really what we're trying to do. Once entrepreneurs understand the difference and they're like, oh, so I'm more of a partner than just one of 20 companies. Also remember that a lot of the venture capital firms, not all, but many of them, a lot of these are financial engineers, not necessarily operators. Yeah. And in order to create alpha, certainly in my opinion, you need to operate. You can financial engineer anything and make money on it. But in order to create true alpha, you have to be able to operate. In most of these family offices, 
have something. They were at the base of at the foundation. They were an entrepreneur. They have a skill set. They started Beanie Babies or they started Guest Jeans or Giorgio Perfume or whatever it is. And they have a skill set or the CEO of Walgreens. They have a specific skill set that they can use and they can operate it. So the issue really comes back to alignment of interest. And I think that families are starting to realize that they should stay in their swim lane and what they're not an expert in, they'll talk to other family offices because we'll collaborate at Stanford and say, well, you know, I'm not a real estate guy, but you know, this guy made a ton of money in real estate. He's an expert. We'll do a deal with him. So what you're going to see happening, you're starting to see already is the investors, the entrepreneurs bypassing private equity and venture capital and families going directly from family to family. So a family office would rather invest typically with another family office than with a venture capital fund because their interests are more aligned. As you said, patient capital is something we will hear a lot about, but actually we are on our roughly 40th interview with you right now. And we've heard it a lot <laughs> in previous in, with previous guests and we've heard it from established VCs. So, you know, Draper's free, they IPO the fund so they can be more patient and they don't have those misalignments of incentives. But we also hear it from emerging managers where instead of doing, you know, typical VC funds, so, you know, the, the 10 year or nine plus two, eight plus two, whatever they do and they set up investment companies and they have shareholders, right? What are your thoughts about these two approaches and how do you think it will impact the industry as a whole? If you look at a lot of these people who run the private equity and venture capital funds and you truthfully ask them, how many blind pool private equity venture capital firms do you go into as an LP? If they're honest, their answer is going to be very few. At the end of the day, this is not complicated. At the end of the day, it's going to take a while to work its way into the system. There's a lot of work we have to do with family offices. If 25% of families make it to G2, 10 to G3, and 5 to G4, the model currently doesn't work. But a lot of that has to do with the soft skills. And if we start focusing, which we will at Stanford, on governance, on succession planning, on estate planning, on philanthropy, on impact investing, not just creating alpha, family offices in general they're more holistic, right? It's not just about creating alpha. If you're Apollo, it's bottom line, what's your return? A family office looks at things through a different lens. They look at things sometimes through multi-generation and they might get a lower return, but they're more focused on succession. They might get a lower return, but impact is important to them and philanthropy is important to them. So the way a family office looks at the world is much more holistic than a private equity or venture capital firm. Definitely. We see that every day. What you're building is community for family offices. And I'd love to pick your brains on how do you do that? How do you go about it? Because it's difficult normally, but for family offices, it's probably even more difficult. The first, second, and third thing a family office wants to know before they're going to work with you is, can they trust you? And then the fourth thing they're going to want to know is, where'd you go to school? What's your track record? You know, things like that. That's flipped with institutions and pensions, right? They want to know what's your three-year track record, five-year track record, your biggest drawdown. They want to know the numbers. So for family office, it's a question of trust. 86% were created since 2000. Half of those were created since the crash. Why were those created? They were created, a lot of it has to do with trust because what was happening is these family offices who made their money, you know, creating an app and they're not experts in what we do in Wall Street, when the market crashed, you know, a hedge fund would put up gates. They didn't even know what gates were. Gates basically say you can't sell. So there's a lack of trust, I think. And people felt 
and again, I'm generalizing, but they felt burned by Wall Street. So the whole reason that this whole revolution has started was because everybody's going to lose money in deals, period, end of conversation. It doesn't work. But you shouldn't lose money because there's alignment of interest is not right. And the reason these all these family offices were created has to do primarily at the fundamental level with I want to invest with people that I can trust that have similar values and similar alignment of interest. How do you go about, because I'm guessing you're being approached as well by these smaller family offices, how do you go about telling them, I'm about to say truth, but that is that is a bit tough to say. But, you know, most VCs would say, I have a very difficult time talking to family office managers who, you know, have done great business in their own sector and for that reason think that they should go out and start investing directly. And, you know, that's, of course, the VC's argument is, now nah, you shouldn't directly invest in me. You're not saying invest in VC's, but you're saying build a multifamily office instead of doing it yourself. At the end of the day right now, the real growth is going to come in the multifamily office. There aren't that many families that are worth over 500 million. So between 10 million and 200 million, that's where the real growth is. And the multifamily office, rather than me paying $250,000 for an attorney to be on staff, I'm splitting that with 10 different people. So now I'm paying $25,000 versus $250,000. That's the whole model of the multifamily office. And again, this is still the Wild West. People will say, I gave a lecture at Stanford and I had five patriarchs, all billion-dollar families, and I asked a simple question. I just said, what's the family office and why did you create yours? Mm -hmm. And I got five completely different answers. And nobody was right and nobody was wrong. That's why they created them. But that's where we are in the industry. People really need to think, if you're going to have a single-family office, why do you want one? Do you want one because you want this to last multiple generations? A lot of people think they want to create a family office just because they have a family office, they have a lot of capital, they can do it. But if you reverse engineer it, it's not hard to tell them. I'll just do the math for them. I'll say, if you have $100 million, that's a lot of money. It's a tremendous amount of money. But here's the cost for you yeah. to set that up. And that's why multifamily offices were set up. So in many instances, certainly anybody under $250 million, I strongly encourage them, go with a multifamily office because your interests are better aligned. The problem, it's been good because the market's gone up, but people haven't really focused too much on it because everything's gone up in the past 10 years when so many of these family offices have been created. When you head into a recession, things will change. And a lot of people who are single family offices will morph into multifamily offices. Most of our listeners are either VCs, emerging VCs, or lovers of the VC industry. And so I'm curious to know what gets you excited when a VC approaches you. And I suppose that happens quite often or to some extent. Are there caveats to what you're saying? And you said you're generalizing. So now I'm, I'm asking you to ungeneralize, so to speak, right? Yeah. First of all, you absolutely need venture capitalists. You absolutely need venture capital funds. I mean, period. End of conversation. They're necessary because family offices, if we're in the second inning, there's no way they can compete with the venture capital firms and urban funds in general. A couple, you know, the Pritzkers, the Crowns, the Dells, who have a team of 40 people, yeah, they can compete directly, but most of them can't. So where we are in the curve, you absolutely need them. And there will always be a huge need for venture capital. My whole premise is that it's not going to replace, right? The family offices, it's not a panacea. They're not going to replace venture capital or private equity. But my thesis is that they'll disrupt it and it'll chip away at it. And that over the next three to five years, again, 
the venture capital industry is massive and it'll continue to be massive. But I just think that pie is going to shrink a little bit. And some of that's going to come from the venture capital firms into the family offices. Where we are right now, there's no way family offices can handle it, right? I think what we're trying to create at Stanford is a way for family offices to do venture capital better, collaborate better, but we're not there yet. And even in five years, when we get much further along, there will always be a huge demand for venture. I'm just saying that a lot of this is gonna be chipped away as the private equity, it's just like there's a huge demand for public market stock, you know, things in the public market. You can't do only private markets, but for part of it, when they look at the alignment of interest, when people get educated more in family offices, it's going to slowly chip away at the funds under management for venture capital and private equity. That's what I'm saying. I would at least expect that we see privately held companies grow a lot as an asset class or as a structure. So in that sense, I think that the overall pie is going to grow. As such, the venture capital industry will also grow. The venture capital industry, look, it's a great industry and it will grow. It will continue to grow. My whole point is that most people don't really understand the value right now of family offices. Mm -hmm. And in some instances, certainly now, and maybe for the next three to five years, you're better off going to a venture capital firm. But once they get their ducks in a row, and once we've created this ecosystem at Stanford, there will be a choice. It's not going to be, I'm going to move everything to venture, or everything to family offices. It's just that certain parts will move into venture and certain parts will move into family offices. So it's not going to take that whole pie and just deplete it. It's just going to shrink it a little bit. And then you're right. It will also grow because these companies will grow as well. So I'm very bullish on the venture capital industry for sure. All I'm saying is this is an alternative that many people don't fully understand. And once they understand it, more and more people will be interested in it. More and more people will diligence it. And in many instances, people will say, in this particular instance, it may be a better model. What I'm curious to understand, Ron, and I'm restating the question, I know, but it's what I'm curious to understand is you're not saying that you shouldn't do VC or that you should only do VC, you know, in terms of investing. What I'm trying to understand is where does that balance lie from a perspective? Because I can imagine, you know, if you see an exciting venture capital firm doing something great in a specific area, let's say, for example, healthcare, and that the family office doesn't have that skill set, but wants to be involved in healthcare and wants to bring value to healthcare, maybe that would make sense. I'm just trying to understand what's what's your balance in terms of the view. That's a great point. And what will happen there is, let's say they made their money in technology and they want to invest in healthcare and they're not healthcare experts. What I'm saying is that through Stanford and by collaborating, maybe the CEO of Walgreens who now has a, who's a friend, Greg Wasson, who has a family office, who certainly knows a lot about healthcare, maybe you club a deal with him. So that's really what's going to happen. You should stay in your swim lane in what you know. And then what you don't know, you need to collaborate with other family offices. And if you're going to invest in healthcare, you talk to somebody who made their money in healthcare. If you're going to invest in real estate, you do it with that. The problem right now is because everything's so siloed, it doesn't exist. And all we're trying to do is create a platform where people exist. So right now, if I'm an entrepreneur and I want to find the 250 biggest private equity firms or venture capital firms, I can go to a list and I could see number one, number two, number three, number four. You can't do that for family offices. And a lot of them, you know, they want to remain secretive. They want to remain under the radar for specific reasons. But once people understand what patient capital can do, and again, in many instances, I've seen so many companies have been sold three to four or five times in 20 years. If you look at the friction and the cost 
of buying and selling those companies. And let's say you just held that company for 20 years. You know, Jeff Bezos gave a speech. I was actually at one of his conferences. And he said, the biggest advantage I have is everyone's competing over three to five year money. I'm looking at 10 year money. If you're looking at that, there's very few people competing. So you look at an industry like space, which again, I don't invest in, but that could be 10, 20 years. So who's doing space? Elon Musk, Bezos, I mean, Richard Branson, they have a much longer term time frame. So that's what I'm saying. There's venture capital is the epicenter of entrepreneurs and it will continue to grow. But I'm just saying that I do believe that family offices are going to chip away once people understand the value added. And again, when pre-COVID and everything was working, I saw money being paid for companies, which I would scratch my head. The family offices, the advantage they have is they just don't have to invest. If you're a venture capital fund, you have to deploy the capital. I mean, you can give it back, but there's probably about 0% of the people who give that back. (laughs) So if you don't have to give it back and the market's at a really inflated price, you basically have to buy companies that are higher than you know they should be. Now, hopefully it'll continue to go up, but the family offices will sit back and say, you know what? It's worth X, it's not worth 3X, go ahead and take it. It's not often that you have the chance as a VC to talk to someone with as broad a knowledge of family offices. So I would want to ask you to all the VCs listening in, all the emerging managers trying to raise from family offices, what are the clear do's and don'ts in trying to build that relationship? For the emerging managers and the VCs, I think venture is a niche area. You're either doing it full time or you're going to get crushed, right? It's a very hard market. Having said that, if you're good, the performance could be fantastic. And if you're in the upper quartile, it's a phenomenal asset to be in. The question is, how do you pick who's going to be in the top quartile? And obviously, it shifts back and forth. So my belief is that family offices will continue these emerging managers right now it's hard to get into the family offices because where do you find there's no list there's no you can't go to pitch book and find these family they deliberately stay under the radar that's one of the reasons we created this center we're creating the center at stanford is because we want them to say look here's an alternative it's not always the better alternative and sometimes it's the worst alternative but there is another option and we're just giving another option. And again, it just has to do with transparency. It has to do with alignment of interest. It has to do with patient capital. And these emerging managers who want to get in front of family offices, we'll give them a platform where they can do that. Right now, it's just they're scrambling and these are all one-offs. Once we create the ecosystem and the infrastructure to do this, it'll be much easier for them to do it. Provocative question. <laughs> I have a background um, in more the life science space. That's the example I gave. And I've had conversations with many VCs saying, you know, ah, that's I don't like that space. It takes too long. So it kind of connects to the topic of patient capital that you were referring to. And hard tech has that characteristic. Do you think that the need for patient capital kind of will drive that capital towards riskier assets? or assets that have a higher technological risk. What are your thoughts around that? Because some would argue that yes, right? In your example, obviously. So if with life sciences, patient capital, but I would argue that if you're an entrepreneur, right? And you're looking to raise money, you can go to a venture capital firm and there's a lot of fantastic firms out there and they're great partners. But my belief is that I'm, now I'm looking at it through the lens of the entrepreneur, not the lens of the venture capital fund. Yep, yep. And if I'm the entrepreneur, Do I want to partner with somebody that is incented to flip companies, to sell them every three to five years, 
or somebody that their incentive is to grow the business and they're not so focused on IRR. In, in some instances, it's gonna be better to go to a venture capital firm or a venture capital fund. But in many instances, if you're that entrepreneur, I think it's a more strategic partnership in general. I think they look at things, they, they've also got something called patient capital. It's also strategic capital because these families come in and they made their money in real estate or they made their money in technology or wherever. Once these families come together and they start saying, okay, I want to invest in healthcare and they know there's these five families that made their money in healthcare, I'll kind of put it with them. Yeah. And so what you're seeing happening right now is a tremendous amount of family offices, Pritzker's included, they're raising their own money. And their thesis is, well, we can compete with them and we don't have to flip it every three to five years. Ron, we always end our episodes with a quick fire round. It's a small section with three quick answer questions, 30 to 60 seconds each. Are you ready? I am ready. <laughs> okay. So from the family office perspective, what are the areas in venture that excite you the most that maybe other people don't really feel that excited about? Technology is changing so fast and so quickly. It's mind boggling. I mean, I had a typewriter in college and, <laughs> and my kids were like born with a phone in their hand. So what gets me excited is anything with technology, everything with, it has to do with technology. The world is getting exponentially more efficient and it's due to technology. So the venture capital right now, there's a massive need for it because it keeps growing and expanding. Second question, what's the most counterintuitive thing that you've learned when working with family offices? Initially, the most counterintuitive thing is you assume somebody's worth a billion dollars, by definition, they're a sophisticated family office. And that's not necessarily true. Because if you think about it, where did they make their money? They sold teddy bears or they a chain of gas stations or, or five-hour energy or whatever it is. So initially you would think, wow, somebody's a billion dollars, they're efficient. That's counterintuitive. But then when you think about it deeper, it's really not. Third and final question, what should we expect in the future from Ron Diamond? <laughs> I want to raise my daughters. I've got 17 <laughs> and 20, so get through that. Well, I, from a business standpoint, really what I'm trying to do, I'm kind of at the intersection of what I call prosperity and purpose, right? So I do want to do things, create alpha, I'm a capitalist and make money in different areas and surround myself with best people. But one of the things I'm trying to do at Stanford is... I do believe that family offices, it's not a panacea and they can't solve the world, all the world's problems. But if you look at what Bill Gates did with vaccines, if you look at what Michael Milk, like my father passed away at 57 from prostate cancer. And I used to work for Michael Milken. Michael Milken did more for the cure of prostate cancer than any human being. So all of us on this call, the three of us, will die with, not of prostate cancer because of him. So what I believe is gonna happen and what I really, my real, my North Star is to have family offices who have these brilliant business minds help to solve some of these real world problems, whether it be a climate, whether it be in poverty, education, it doesn't matter. You can't run charity or philanthropy exactly like a business, but you could run it more business-like. So that's really what my hope and my dream is is that together collaboratively, we could solve a lot of these problems together. And family offices have brilliant business people. And if they take that mind like Milk and like Bill Gates, we could solve a lot of these issues because we've got a lot of issues to solve. I totally get where you're coming from. Thank you for sharing, Ron. My father also passed away from prostate cancer at the age of 51. So I really get what you're saying. And I think it's really cool and exciting. Thank you. 
Thank you, Ron. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for taking the time. It was awesome to dive deep with you on Family Offices. What a chance we had here. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you very much. And continue doing what you're doing. You're doing great work. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The European VC, your podcast for insights into the European VC industry. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our Slack community at theeuropeanvc.com forward slash community. And don't forget, if you would like to suggest topics or guests for future episodes, join our community and help make the best pod for everything European VC. And if you are about to raise a fund or an international round, do let us know and we'll be happy to introduce you to relevant investors.